Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The space shuttle is one of the most powerful modern instruments that we have when it comes to space exploration. The space shuttle at launch is about 184 feet tall, and it weighs four and a half million pounds. Imagine the power that it takes to thrust that from Earth 200 miles to its orbit. And once it arrives at its orbit, by the way, it takes seven million pounds of thrust to get that space shuttle up to its orbit. Once it's at orbit velocity, it travels at 17,000 miles per hour. But that kind of power takes its toll on anybody who would encounter it. For example, astronauts, when they're strapped into the seat of a space shuttle, their, their body receives the effect in terms of G-force. And they estimate that between two to three Gs, your body reacts very differently. You can't move or lift your arms or legs very well. Your 10-pound head feels like 50 pounds. Tough to get it up, straining the muscles. And the heart is hindered from pumping blood to the body and to the brain, so that around 4 or 5 Gs, most people who are not equipped or trained black out. To encounter that kind of power takes special equipment and special training. I'll never forget the power encounter I had with 220 volts of electricity, which I found out is very different from American current at 110. I was in Europe, and I was um, standing up by a microphone, and I went to get a sound check, and I got too close. This thing wasn't grounded right, and I essentially kissed the microphone and whited it out. I crumpled to the ground, and I said to everybody, Did you see that flash of lightning? They looked at me like, what are you talking about? I had a powerful encounter with 220 volts of electricity. Today and next week, we're going to look at a very interesting passage in Acts 19 where the Apostle Paul encounters power, both miraculous, godly, and demonic. And you might say it's sort of an odd text to camp on for a couple weeks, but I'm doing it for this reason. It will show us the kind of relationship that Paul had with the supernatural world and how he was able to endure it, what he learned through it, his command in the midst of it. We're going to focus on, as I said, this particular section this week and next week. And it also shows us that whatever... Whatever God does, whenever God does a work, Satan is very interested in that work. You've heard me say it time and time again. When you turn on the lights, the bugs come. And when the light of the gospel was turned on in that ancient world, all sorts of bugs, all sorts of spiritual activity swarmed around it. As it is with any work of God, Satan would love to topple it. Now there's some questions that surface when we delve into this kind of a study. Questions like, what are we to make of miracles? What are they exactly? And should we expect the miraculous today in our day and age? 
Uh, Questions like Satan's power. Just how powerful is the devil? Should we be scared? Should we be concerned? Should the reality of this hidden powerful world have any bearing with our reality in our daily lives? So I'm going to take you back to verse 11 of chapter 19, and we're going to read tonight all the way down to verse 21, though we're only going to cover a few verses in our study tonight. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you. Notice there's an O, not an E. He's not making them do push-ups or laps. We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were also seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. These power encounters that Paul had occurred in the town of Ephesus, a very, very important city at that time, a polytheistic town similar to Corinth and similar to Athens. Now, Ephesus was famous for two things. Worship of a goddess named Diana and magical arts, superstitious, magical, demonic arts. And both of those were very closely linked together. Now, as you saw in the video, Diana, that's the Roman name. Artemis is the Greek name. She was the virgin goddess of the hunt. And as depicted with that grotesque image of many breasts, because she was also the goddess of fertility. She was worshipped primarily in Ephesus. And has been stated, her temple was four times larger than that of the Parthenon, that huge temple in Athens. It was the largest building in the Greek world at that time. A huge edifice was in Ephesus. There was also discovered in recent times magical papyri, that is, uh, pieces of writing documents with letters and little words and spells and incantations that were used to conjure up powerful spirits. So that's why I say Ephesus was famous for the worship of Diana and the magical arts. Now, we read what we're going to be dealing with in part tonight and in part next week. 
But let's just go back a few verses to set the stage for these power encounters. He, Paul, went into the synagogue. Now that's where he always started, right? When he went into a town. And he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years. So Paul spends a lot of time in this town. So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so Paul the Apostle, true to form, is at it again. He goes into the synagogue and he starts speaking. He's a lean, mean, preaching machine, and he always gets in trouble, doesn't he? And wherever he goes, there's a variety of how that trouble is meted out. Sometimes he gets beat up. Sometimes he gets thrown in jail. This was sort of minimal. People hardened their hearts. They didn't want to listen to him. So Paul leaves the synagogue. And he rents out some kind of lecture hall, probably, from a philosopher-educator named Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus means tyrant. Now, I don't know where he got that name from, but it's a curious name. Tyrant. We don't know if it's a nickname. Probably it was either by his parents or by his students. And I would venture to say it was by his students. So Paul spends time in the school of Tyrannus, this lecture hall, for two years giving the gospel. Now let's look, beginning in verse 11, at two of the four levels, experiences that Paul had in Ephesus with these supernatural spiritual beings. First of all, there was supernatural activity, and second, there was superficial authority, and both of those we want to cover tonight. Verse 11 says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. Unusual miracles, it says. If you have the New International Version, it says extraordinary miracles. Now, I sort of laugh at that because what would be an ordinary miracle? I mean, the very definition of a miracle is that it is an unusual, extraordinary occurrence. No, no miracle is ordinary. But it brings up a couple of mistakes that people make concerning miracles. Mistake number one is to naturalize them. People sometimes have a tendency to use the term miracle for a common occurrence. They sort of degrade the very definition. They make it a a loose term, an empty term. They'll say things like, well, every time a baby is born, what a miracle. No, it's not because it happens all the time. It's very natural. Well, a sunset is a miracle, and a sunrise is a miracle. Uh, Finding a parking spot at the mall during Christmas, that's a miracle. Well, maybe that is. (laughs) But there's this tendency to naturalize them, to minimize them. And all that does is cheapen the very definition of a miracle being not ordinary. It degrades the definition. Listen to Webster's Dictionary. Webster had it right. A miracle, he says, 
is an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. That's not a bad definition. A miracle is God intervening into natural law. The Greek word here for miracle is dunamis. It simply means power or something powerful. This is a power encounter. And a miracle is a divine exercise of power for a divine purpose. So that's mistake number one. People tend to naturalize them. Mistake number two when it comes to miracles is people tend to trivialize them. That is, explain them away. Oh, we're not so dumb as to believe that miracles could even happen. That's simply simplistic, naive minds interpreting natural occurrences. They can't explain them, so they call it a miracle. Now, that is nothing new, by the way. Philosophers from a long time ago, including Celsus, whose library we showed in that little video, Hierocles, Porphyry, Apollonius, all these ancient philosophers attacked the idea that miracles could even exist. That's ancient times. In more modern times, David Hume, Spinoza, Sir Julian Huxley, all of them have attacked the idea of the miraculous. Okay, we would expect that if it was just agnostics or unbelievers or skeptics attacking the Christian faith. However, what is disparaging to me is to find out how many so-called believers also do this, trivialize them. I've read commentaries, folks, where in reading the miracle of the Exodus through the Red Sea, they'll say things like, well... That probably didn't really happen. It's a confusing term, Red Sea. It would probably best be translated Reed Sea, a sea of reeds that sort of fills up to 18 inches that people can wade through at the right time of the year. So the children of Israel waded through 18 inches of water to get from one side to the next. Let's suppose that were true. Then you have a bigger miracle because God was able to drown an entire army of Egyptians in 18 inches of water. Hallelujah. (laughs) But it doesn't stop there. There's commentators of New Testament stories that also trivialize miracles. One of my favorite commentators, and some taters are more common than others, I suppose, but... One of my favorite commentators of New Testament books is William Barclay. But every time Barclay deals with the miraculous, he gets twisted up. For instance, the miracle of Jesus taking a few loaves and fishes and multiplying them. You know what Barclay says? Barclay says, really, it wasn't a miracle at all. Truth is, everybody probably brought their lunch that day, but they didn't want to take it out because then they'd have to share it with people. But there was this little kid who took out his lunch and he shared it with Jesus and it so convicted everybody else, they brought out their lunches and everybody ate. And then when Barclay gets to Jesus walking on the water, you know, while the disciples are in the boat and they cry out for help and Jesus walks to them in the water, he says probably what happened is the boat the disciples were in drifted toward the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, which has um, a nice shallow shelf of beach. And Jesus was wading through the waves on the sand, maybe ankle-deep water, and he walked out to the boat 
and had a conversation with him. Which is again very miraculous because Peter got out of the boat and he started to sink. What, in the sand? (laughs) Now here's the problem I have with all of these stories. Here we are in our modern era and mankind is able to take a four and a half million pound space shuttle and thrust it powerfully into space. And yet we have trouble ascribing that kind of power to God? Why do we have to explain a miracle away? Either naturalize it or trivialize it. Here's the truth. God is not a prisoner to His own laws. God has instituted natural law. And God at any time can, because He's God, supersede natural law. I'll give you a human example. Space shuttle. Gravity would demand that anything weighing four and a half million pounds stays on Earth. It's not going to move. Of course, we know that there's science applied to this. If you apply enough thrust and aerodynamics, you can supersede the law of gravity. It doesn't take away the law, it just supersedes it momentarily. So... We understand that dead people don't get up once they're dead. We understand that people can't walk on water because water can't displace the weight of a man or woman upright. However, God can at any time, though a law is in place, supersede that law, override that law, and when He does, we call it a miracle. It is not an ordinary event. A miracle is something that is humanly impossible, but divinely simple. I had a friend who lived down the street from me some years ago, and he loved model trains. And he had his whole basement set up with a train track, mountain, city, little people, turned on the lights, and he would step back and with remote control from a distance, get that train around the track. But every now and then, Just every now and then, he would decide to step into that scene and with his hand reach in and pick up a train car and reposition it or put it back on track. That was his prerogative. God at any time can step into the environment he created and supersede or overrule, override natural law. But, back to the text. God worked unusual miracles, it says, through Paul. That is extraordinary, not typical. Now we're told what that means in verse 12. But what would be a typical miracle? Well, that's sort of hard to define, except that in the New Testament, what they did most typically, if there was a sick person, is walk up to the sick person, lay their hand on the sick person, give a verbal command, the name of Jesus Christ, so it was unmistakable as to who is the source of the healing. And that was a more of a typical pattern. Now, this was not typical. It was unusual. You know why? This is unusual. It says, Even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So that Paul's own clothes became sort of conveyors of spiritual power. You see the word handkerchiefs? Sudarion is the Greek word. It actually refers to a towel that you would wipe perspiration from your face. It's a sweatband. 
And tent makers had an apron tied around their waist and a cloth or a towel tied around their heads so that they could wipe the dirt on their apron and wipe the sweat off their brow. And those are the things that heal people. That is unusual. It's funny to me because every now and then I'll get something in the mail from a televangelist. And I got one recently that was a handkerchief. And uh, this verse was quoted. That, you know, there's special miracle power in this cloth. And if you lay it on yourself, I've already, I prayed for it. I've anointed it. <laughs> yeah, but, but did you sweat on it, you see? Because that is what happened here. That's why it's so unusual. Now, it's sort of hard to figure this out, but it's similar to the woman in the New Testament who had an issue of blood for 12 years and no doctor could make her better. And she said in her mind, if I can touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. She touched the hem of his garment. Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And the disciples said, what do you mean who touched you? You're in a crowd. Everybody touched you. He said, no, I perceive power has left me, has gone from me. There was some powerful encounter, and this woman said, if I can touch the hem of his garment. Or it's similar to the time Jesus did something very unusual. And he took some dirt, and he spat on the ground. He made a mud ball, put it in a guy's eye, and said, wash that out. And the guy washed it out, and he was healed. He could see again. It's not that the hem of the garment, nor the sweatband of Paul nor the mud ball, were themselves repositories of spiritual power, but rather they became points of contact whereby those who were sick were able to release their faith and cooperate with the sovereign, divine will of God in healing that individual. There's another unusual miracle. Acts chapter 5, I'll just read it to you. They brought the sick out into the streets of Jerusalem and laid them on beds and couches so that the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them and they were healed. So it's not that miracles by the disciples, by the apostles were unusual and all miracles are extraordinary, but these were unusual because they authenticated the apostolic ministry of Paul the Apostle. As he will say later on, the miracles of an apostle were wrought in me. Here's another question this brings up. That was then. What about now? Are miracles for today? Is that just some apostolic stuff, early church stuff? Do they happen today? Do they occur today? And you might say, you know, I've read the book of Acts, and boy, there's miracles all over this book. How come we don't see them now? Well, keep the perspective. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. It covers a period of roughly 30 years. If you count up all the miracles in the book of Acts, there's about 30 miracles. So that averages out to be a miracle a year. Now, I know you can read the book of Acts in one setting and you think a miracle happened every single day. It didn't. But the ones that did were recorded, and 30 of them were recorded, and it covers a 30-year period of church history. But I don't believe that the miraculous work of God ended with the apostolic era. And I don't think that because there's enough church history written from the time the Bible was written up till now that would indicate that miracles became part of the course 
of church history. That God was at work and spiritual gifts and healings, etc. were recorded by responsible recorders of church history. For instance, Irenaeus, who lived from A.D. 130 to A.D. 200, writes, quote, Others will heal the sick by laying hands on them, and they are made whole. And moreover, as I have said, the dead have been raised up and remained among us for many years. Close quote. This is far after the apostolic era. Augustine, A.D. 354 to 430, said in the city of God, after seeing many miracles, What am I to do? I cannot record all of the miracles that I know. And then if you move the time a little bit closer, Martin Luther in the 1500s, when his close friend Philip Melanchthon was ill, and I mean ill, close to death, he couldn't talk, he couldn't hear, his eyes were fixed, he almost lost consciousness. Luther walked into his room one day, these are his words, he wrote them, And he wrote on the wall a scripture. Psalm 118, verse 17. I shall not die, but live, and I shall declare the works of the Lord. Luther said, Melanchthon was healed, and it showed to him God's supernatural power in his time. And I think, if we were honest, we also see miracles today, especially in places that replicate the conditions of the early church. But keep in mind... A miracle is God's divine power. It's it's power under the control of God. Now, I don't think you should expect them every day of your life. I've seen on television. Expect your daily miracle. Listen, if there was a daily miracle, we wouldn't call them miracles. We call them regulars, right? Because it's a miracle, it intervenes in natural occurrences. Well, let's go on and see what else happens in verse 12. Not only is there unusual miracles, this supernatural activity, but there's undeniable might. Now look at verse 12. It says that, And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And then into the next verse, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Spirits. Now, what are these evil spirits? They're devils, demons, supernatural, fallen, malevolent beings whom we cannot see but are very real. Now, some, in hearing that, maybe not most, but some might hear that and go, you're kidding, right? You mean you really believe That these little demons exist? Absolutely. And the devil would love it if you didn't believe he was real. Because there's no enemy more powerful than one you can't see and one you don't believe is real. Then he has you at every turn. Now, just like people make mistakes with miracles, people make mistakes in this realm with demons. Mistake number one, to deny they exist altogether. That's where most people live. Number two, to obsess over them. Now, we're about to read of these guys that obsess over them, especially more next week. But a lot of people today, by and large, deny the existence of the devil proper or demons in particular. You know, it's just a joke. It's the stuff, you know, Saturday Night Live, Dana Carvey skits are made out of, right? 
Could it be Satan? Right? You know that skit. The world laughs at this stuff. It's like the two six-year-old boys that were having a conversation about the devil, struggling over the idea of a devil. And one boy said, I don't believe there is a devil. The other boy said, oh, come on. The Bible's filled with stories about the devil. And the first kid said, yeah, but the devil's sort of like Santa Claus. It really turns out to be your dad. (laughs) Thanks a lot. You know what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10? Listen to him. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I was there. I was an eyewitness. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time. We're going to pick up more next week. But you know what Satan's chief activity is in the present day and age? Deception. Deception, and I would add to that, distraction. Any thing that would deceive a person and distract a person from not looking at Jesus or considering their eternity or considering spiritual matters or believing in Christ as the finished sacrifice for their sins, anything that would distract, anything that would deceive them, he is all about that. And you remember Jesus gave a parable about the sower who went out to sow seed and it it fell on different parts of the ground that represented different hearts that listened to the gospel message. And our Lord said, The word is sown, and as soon as some people hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. So his primary activity today is deception and distraction. Do I believe in a literal devil? Without question. I love how Dwight L. Moody answered it. He said, I believe Satan exists for two reasons. Number one, because the Bible says so. Number two, because I've done business with him. I hope you've done business with him. In fact, I hope every believer has done the right kind of business with him. And we'll talk more about that next time. So evil spirits went out of them. And then another group tried, tried to conjure up and cast out evil spirits. Notice it's plural, by the way. There's not one of them or two or three. How many are there? Well, there's a whole bunch. I mean, there's gobs of them. In Revelation chapter 12, John writes concerning the devil that he drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And then a few verses down, Revelation 12 verse 9, he identifies the stars with fallen angels. It says, So that great dragon, Satan, was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So a third of the angelic host was cast out of heaven, and that third became what we call demons, these fallen spirits. Now, how many is a third? Well, we don't know exactly what number we're working from. However, in Revelation chapter 5, John sees all the angels around the throne, and he said, I saw 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. So I presume that's the two-thirds left. So how many are there? A whole bunch. 
But you know, here's the strange thing. We love to sometimes focus on how many demons fell from heaven and they're everywhere. The good news is two-thirds stayed put. And the Bible calls them ministering spirits, those who help those of us who are heirs of salvation. Now, these evil spirits, these demon hordes, aren't just running around loosely. They are a very organized, like a military organization, band host of spirit beings under the control of Satan. In fact, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, there are rankings that are given. We struggle not, Paul said, against flesh and blood, but against, listen to this, rulers and authorities and powers and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. All of those are military rankings of demonic beings under the general authority of Satan. And all of those are your enemies. And if you're going to have any relationship with them at all, that's the one you want. That's the one you want. You want them as your enemy. Charles Spurgeon said, there's something comforting in knowing that the devil is my adversary. He continues, I'd much sooner rather have him for an adversary than for a friend. So if you're going to have any relationship to the devil or demons at all, you don't want to be their friends. You want to be their enemies. And the moment you swear allegiance to Christ, you are their enemy. The moment you decide not to receive Christ and live in sin and and push spiritual things away, you're on their side. And they are powerful. So here is Paul encountering power, miraculous and demonic. Let's, uh, Let's breeze over the next two verses and look at the superficial authority before we close. Now look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant... That means they travel around Jewish exorcists. Took it upon themselves, they're self-called to this ministry, to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And also there were seven sons of, now you can pronounce it Sceva or Siva, or the Greek is Skeva doesn't matter, we anglicize it, so call it Sceva. A Jewish chief priest who did also. Now remember I said that Ephesus was a center for practicing the magical arts. And one of the most common trades among these people was exercising, casting out demons. But it calls them itinerant Jewish exorcists. Can you imagine spending your whole time traveling around chasing demons? No, thank you. That would be like the worst thing on earth. I remember a phone call I got years ago here in Albuquerque from someone in the community, and I didn't quite know what they were asking. They called up and they said, do you deliver? And I remember saying, are you looking for a pizza place? They said, no, I mean, do you deliver people from demons? Now, I believe that we have spiritual authority over all demonic forces, and in taking that authority in the spirit world, Jesus promised about his disciples, in my name they will cast out demons. But I don't go looking for them. I don't go making it a habit to chase them. And next week I'll tell you a a very interesting story about a group that I met that did exactly that. But we have itinerant exorcists. 
Add to that, verse 14, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Now, try to understand who these seven are, these sons. They are PKs. You know what a PK is? Do we have any pastor's kids here? Okay, these are priest's kids, PKs, who are awfully bored and awfully disobedient because the Jewish law, the Old Testament, Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, all of them spell out that they're to have no activity like this at all. It was absolutely condemned and strictly forbidden by the Old Testament. However, the Jewish Talmud, the commentary on the law, tells us that later on in Jewish history, it became quite common among Jewish people to become exorcists. In fact, did you know, and I just found out this this week, a knowledge of magic was required for every member of the Sanhedrin. They had to know the magical arts because they would at some point perhaps try the case in court of those who practice such things. And so they needed to have a reasonable knowledge of it so they could bring those accused of such and apply the law to it. So probably the sons of one of the priests, perhaps tied to the Sanhedrin, heard about the kind of stuff the dad had to study. They became very interested in this, very curious about this. And they became exorcists, those who would travel around and look for power encounters, casting out demons. Now this to me highlights the truth. Listen carefully. Those who grow up in a spiritual environment with spiritual things, be very, very careful. This is what I mean. It's possible to become so familiar with truth, church, Jesus, the Bible, that it becomes routine. It's not real. We don't experience God ourselves. It's just some routine that we follow. And anybody who delves into just religion quickly finds out that religion doesn't satisfy you. It's a dead-end road. It is. And if you are merely looking at God on a religious level or dealing with Jesus on a religious level, you're going to come to a point where you become disenchanted and you crave real, authentic, spiritual experiences, real spiritual encounters. I went to church all my life. I went through the routine all my life. And as soon as somebody told me about astral projection, spirit writing, the occult, I gravitated toward it. And I got involved in it. You know why? I wanted something real. And I discovered it was real. And it was scary. And I finally came to a point where I said, if there's this much power on the wrong side, how much power is there on the right side? But not everybody gets to that point. Now, these guys here were superstitious. It says, they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus over those with evil spirits. In other words, they're pure pragmatists. They're not believers. They are magical enchanters who are using the name of Jesus, believing that just uttering the name would have power. And it's interesting because... They're invoking the name of a Messiah they don't believe in, preached by a rabbi they don't support. 
They don't care. It's not about that. It's about, hey, I saw what Paul did in the streets and it was powerful. I'm going to use that name because whatever works, the end will justify the means. So they use the name of Jesus in sort of a a magical way. It's not that far removed from people who today will not love Jesus, will not believe in Jesus, will not trust Jesus, but will run around wearing a cross. Either because it's a very nice piece of jewelry, or just in case, I'll score points with the big guy. If I have a cross around my neck, I could die, I could say, I had a cross. Believe it or not, people will say exactly that. Using a cross or the name of Jesus in a mystical, magical way. Now, we'll read more about this next week in our second study, but a couple things to walk away with. What are we to make of all this? Number one, walk away with this. You're in a war. Following Jesus isn't a playground. It's the best life on earth, best life, most fulfilling life in the world. But you also step into a battleground. You have a real enemy who is the devil with all of his demons. That's why the Bible says to us, be vigilant or sober because your enemy walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And his primary tool is deception and distraction as well as division and a whole host of others. He's got a lot of tools. You're in a war, you have a real enemy. Number two, though you have a powerful enemy, you have a much more powerful commanding officer. Focus on that. Greater is he that is in you than this one, he that is in the world. Number three, God has no distant relatives. God has no distant relatives. Did you know that? God has no grandchildren. God has no great-grandchildren. God has no nephews or nieces. You can't say, I come to God by the Jesus my mom preaches. Or, yeah, the Jesus that grandpa believed in. You need your own real personal relationship with God. You can't use somebody else's relationship like these guys tried to do. Fourth and finally, I'll leave this with you. God wants to do something through your life. I don't know what it is exactly. He's got an individual plan and template just for you. He wants to do something through you. Now, here in Ephesus, God worked through unusual miracles with Paul. But he wants to do something in and through your life, in this community, in this fellowship, in your world. In order to pull that off, you're going to need God's power. Otherwise, you're left to trusting in your own power. And you'll quickly run out of gas. True story. A few years ago, Tournament of Roses, you know, the parade on New Year's Day in Pasadena, California. One of the big floats sputtered and stopped right in the middle of the street which held up all of the other floats. You know what happened? Simple. It ran out of gas. You know what was odd about it? It was the float for the Standard Oil Company. (laughs) Go figure. The company, the float, 
that represents the company with vast oil reserves and all of the gas ran out of gas. Now here we are as believers with all of the power of God behind us. He lives within us. He inhabits us. All of the resources in heavenly places, Ephesians 1 tells us. Yet so many of us run out of gas. It's because you need to get refilled. Paul said, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. To live the Christian life is impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible on your own. But through His power, you're more than conquerors. So God wants to do a great work through you. Find out what it is and operate not in the flesh, but in His power. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this study tonight. Just really scratching the surface of a very interesting time of Paul's life. When he encountered miraculous power, the opposition of demonic power, he was in that war zone called Ephesus with a powerful enemy, but a more powerful commanding officer. Lord, Paul knew you. Others called on the name of Jesus who didn't know you. I pray that everyone here would not only know you, but operate in the fullness of your Spirit's power in their lives. Fill us afresh tonight, even as we close this song and close this service. Fill us afresh. Give us the energy we need for today, tomorrow, this week, come what may. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.